Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Barry, great to be able to catch up with you uh, on the first budget that we've seen in two years from the Canadian federal government. I don't know if that's shocking. I'm asking everybody if it is. Uh, but w- what's your quick reaction to seeing the uh, the debt and debt levels and deficit, deficit numbers grow? Uh, they're quite shocking, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, we expected a so-called election budget, which usually has higher spending and higher deficits. But I think this is certainly well beyond what I thought uh, the, the deficit levels would work out to be. Um, but keep in mind, you know, that the, the budget is designed to keep the government in power. And um, it's not supposed to be the best Thing for the country is supposed to be an election budget. And, uh, you know, they pretty much prov- tried to provide something for everybody. And there's generally a lot of stuff in there for a lot of people. So I, I would describe it as a, a typical election budget, but beyond what I think my and the market expectations were in terms of the deficit levels. So in other words, the, the, you and the market are very concerned about the deficit levels. Let's just make sure everybody's up to speed in terms of the numbers we're talking about today and really where we were going back a number of years ago, ago in terms of net debt and deficit. And again, I don't want people to be bored by us talking about debt levels and numbers. We also have to kind of wrap into the conversation why it's important to actually care about this. Yeah, well, for those people who have been around for a while, in the early 1990s, Canada really went through a debt crisis, and the debt-to-GDP levels uh, were nearly 100% at that time at the federal level, Uh, but the provincial government debts were relatively small at that point in time. Uh, But it got to the point where... Government of Canada really couldn't sell a Government of Canada bond denominated in Canadian dollars to a foreigner. We had to issue debt in US dollars if we wanted foreigners to buy our bonds, which meant the Canada-US spreads blew out significantly and the Canadian dollar fell significantly. So interest rate, short-term interest rates in the US at the time were six six percent and short-term rates in Canada were 14 percent which for two economies that are linked at the hip that's an enormous difference um, and uh, we all also had the Canadian dollar hit record lows right around the, those times so debt levels matter and most importantly, 
the debt to GDP ratios matter for Canada infinitely more than they do for the United States because the United States is the world's reserve currency and has you know, trillions of natural buyers of US treasury bonds where the natural buyers of Canadian government bonds outside of Canada are relatively limited. So explain a little bit more in terms of why that matters. And, and I, I suppose, um, I'll take a stab at it, it matters in the sense that if you've got higher debt or raise, rising debt levels, the government to continue to fund that debt and the plans for more debt, um, they have to issue bonds. And, and what you're essentially saying is that our bonds will become less and less attractive to any kind of outside buyer. So who's going to be even buying our debt? Right. And then if our bonds are less attractive, it also means that our currency is less attractive, which means that if our currency falls, inflation levels will rise and it'll blow up the key assumptions in the in the budget, which is uh, which are very aggressive, by the way, they're they're assuming that growth is going to be very strong going forward, like it is this year. They're also assuming that um, inflation will rise somewhat, which will uh, help the debt to GDP ratio because it'll drive nominal GDP higher uh, and interest rates won't rise. Now that's to expect stronger growth higher inflation and that interest rates are going to stay low, that's a very unusual and very aggressive kind of assumption. And you can probably throw oil prices in there too, uh, because oil is important to government revenues in Canada. So they're, they're betting on higher oil prices, which have doubled in the last year already and oil is constrained in Canada by pipelines. And if the world's vehicle fleet electrifies, uh, the likelihood of oil prices rising is you know, diminished. So in other words, uh, Barry, in terms of their base case assumptions, they're using the best case scenario. Uh, it's almost like, you know, numbers don't lie, but you can use the numbers you want to make the scenario right. that, that you want. And they definitely did that. And, and you know what, every politician does that. It's not unusual. But, yeah. you know, I have, they're saying that the debt to GDP ratio is um, 50%. And they think that they can keep it there, uh, which I'm doubtful on. Uh, but my calculations, the ratio is 60% uh, because we have 2.3 trillion in GDP and 1.4 trillion before all of this. Um, but I think the key point here is Canada went through a significant debt crisis in 19, early 1990s. Uh, late 80s, early 90s, and we had a combined uh, debt to GDP ratio of the federal government and the provinces somewhere between 110 and 120% then. And I think that, uh, well, provincial debt is much higher now and 
federal debt relative to the economy is lower, we're, we're at very similar levels. We're somewhere between 110 and 120% of GDP total debt in this country. And I, you know, I, I think that their views on economic growth going forward are way too optimistic. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's laudable to, to spend a lot of money on uh, childcare, especially we've just come out of COVID and a lot of women were not allowed, were unable to work because the schools were closed and they had to uh, stay home and look at her. And, and women and the lower income people were very disadvantaged versus COVID. So that, that's good. But if you run the deficits up to the point where nobody will buy your bonds and your currency starts declining, which drives inflation higher and interest rates higher, you're gonna have a weaker economy and lower government revenues, and you're gonna get in trouble again. And I, I'm not saying they're on the precipice of trouble, um, but they sure, they're heading in the direction that Canada's debt situation um, could be problematic, uh, very similar to what we had in the early 1990s. Hmm. Uh, Barry, a lot to unpack there. And I, I think that it's important for people to really understand, you know, just to go back for one second, that when you don't have foreigners or sovereign wealth funds in institutions interested in buying your debt, it's because they don't have they don't have the confidence or the interest in your country or your economy. If your the, the currency, down, really, that's the key. They, they don't have faith in the currency to hold value because a currency, a, you know, a bond is unlikely to go up or down 10%, uh, but a currency could go down 40 or 50%. Right. So then the holder of that bond has currency risk. That, that's right. more on the investment side. What I really want people to understand who I hope are, you know, starting to engage in, in wanting to learn about the budget and why all of this matters uh, in the markets is because if the Canadian dollar goes down, um, anything you buy, you're buying with less dollars, essentially. So everything's going to cost you more. Your trip to wherever you want to go is going to cost you more. Your um, diapers that you buy, your whatever you're buying um, will be you know, significantly more expensive if that scenario plays out. Right, and I would argue that the Canadian dollar, even before the budget, uh, is is at the higher end of its range anyway. Right. So this, it, if we went, if we ran into fiscal problems, um, that will exacerbate a currency that could be overvalued anyway. Mm -hmm. um, Barry, what was the market reaction when the budget came out? Well, it was interesting. The uh, The bond market didn't like it at all. The 30-year treasury went down all two points immediately. Uh, but it, since then, it's recovered, and the 30-year treasury bond is actually up a point and eighth today when the U.S. 30-year bond is only up three-quarters of a point. So there's a number of ways you could interpret that. Uh, you could either interpret it that, okay, the knee-jerk reaction was negative, and then people went through all the details and, and felt like it was okay, and then, then went and bought the bonds. Uh, or you could argue that 
the on a thorough analysis that the bond market is basically saying this budget could lead to weaker growth, not stronger growth, and the assumptions might be too optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it'll take away, and, and the currency, the Canadian dollar hadn't really, didn't really move a lot either way, either yesterday or today. Um, so I would say the market evidence is inconclusive yet right now. And how seriously, when we see a budget, um, should we take it in terms of what actually gets implemented um, and actually hits the economy? And maybe that's why the market's inconclusive. Yeah, well, I I believe the United States hasn't actually passed a budget in over 20 years. So that would argue that they're not that meaningful. but they have a different political system than Canada does. And uh, it's very unusual. Only the COVID last year was the only year that Canada didn't have a budget for as long as I can ever remember. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it is important for governments to pass budgets. And currently we have a minority government. So then our government gets to vote on on the budget and they either pass it or don't. And if they don't, uh, then we're gonna have an election. So I think budgets are, you know, important vehicles, particularly when we have minority governments like we do now because either the budget passes and the government maintains power uh, because they have support of one of the other parties uh, or it doesn't pass. And then we go to the polls and have an election and we get, everybody gets to vote with their feet. Right. What, um, what would you want to have happen? Well, because of COVID, I mean, it's very, problematic to try and hold elections and um, it you generally end up with very poor turnouts which means that democracy isn't functioning as normally as it is so personally um, I would rather not have an election but also, I would say that there's a lot of things in this budget that make me a little nervous and uh, in terms of the debt and deficit levels. And, you know, I would likely want an opportunity to, you know, have my vote on it, too. Right. And Barry, in terms of the um, debt levels, it's, it's interesting. The narrative so often has been that the federal debt to GDP is at that 50 mark. And you're saying it's more in your calculations, it's more like 60, but what's that? I think it's higher. Okay, right. Because I think they're they're excluding debt that's held by government pension funds. And they're saying that they owe it to themselves. Well, there's a whole bunch of Canadian retirees that are drawing from those pension funds and uh, the government can't legally cancel that debt to do that. So that's, and 
you know, that's normal for governments to exclude debt held by government pension funds, but it's not correct and it's not even reasonable to exclude it. Do most governments around the world operate like that? Yeah, the U.S. is probably the worst too. Mm. Okay. <laughs> But, but the, re the reason why Matt, the reason why I bring that up, though, is because kind of the narrative that gets talked about as it relates to the debt to GDP figures like, well, it's at 50, say maybe it's 60. But what you brought up to me prior to this conversation is the fact and you, we touched on it a little bit so far is that the provincial debt is so much higher than it used to be. So that's why kind of yeah. all around we're at those, you know, 1990 levels. But that doesn't get talked about in the media narrative, I don't think. No, I don't think they do. And I'm not really sure why not, but I think that the, the economists and strategists know all those numbers. Uh, maybe they don't want to annoy the government, who knows? But, uh, <laughs> but you know, look, every government in the world is increasing debt to GDP significantly and, and were before COVID too. If, if Canada provincial and federal combined is 110 to 120% of GDP, the US is higher than that. It's 130 to 135. Uh, and they're running relatively higher deficits for GDP than we are too. So I think that would be one political argument that you know everybody's doing it and we're at least being at the lower end of the scale, but I also think that that Canada is much more vulnerable to hit the, the sort of bang point that Rogoff and Reinhardt talked of when they wrote about deficits. Um, and it, once once you get there, it's it's ten years of of you know, cutting spending and um, really tough, tough budgeting to get back to the, to get the market's confidence in you. Um, so I don't think it's imminent that Canada is going heading for a debt crisis, but, you know, when we were one of the best in the world three years ago, we're not anymore. And three more years of this, we could be easily into a debt crisis. And just to go back, because it, it cut out, I think, a little bit there. Um, when you enter a debt crisis and, and you talk about um, the very difficult years of, of spending cutbacks, um, what, what gets us to that point? At, at what point does a government come in and say, now we've got to correct this? Is it because the dollar declines so dramatically? It, it can't just be a political yes. ideology because no politician would necessarily do that, even though we've had you know, political parties in the past who have right-sized the Canadian economy. So how does that kind of trans transfer? Well, I, I think it starts with the markets and the markets are telling you through your currency and your interest rate differentials to the United States that Canada has a problem. It starts with that. And then it morphs actually into a political process where, and the same thing happened in the late 80s and early 90s, when 
you got elected not by spending and running up deficits. You got elected by being fiscally responsible. And, you know, the, and it's, it's not specific to parties. In, in the late 80s, the Conservatives introduced the GST, which was really unpopular, and they got defeated in the election. Um, but the Liberals all the way through the 90s, Crutchan uh, governments, they basically were, you know, as tough of physical, you know, fiscally responsible as as any party could have been. So it's it's not just left and right and so on, you know. I think in Canada, there both the Liberals and Conservatives are broadly speaking centrist parties. And um, I, I think either one of them could take the hard decisions. And at some point, one of them is gonna have to. It, it seems though, certainly in, in this budget though, that is not the case. It's a, it's a spending budget yeah. at the same time too. There are some tax increases, uh, tobacco, vaping devices, luxury vehicles, um, just to name a few. What, yeah. What's your take on, on some of those areas that they've targeted? Well, I, you know, I think those are politically popular. They're not, and they're, they're annoying to the, to the wealthier parts of the economy. Uh, but I, I don't think they're big enough to stop people buying new cars and planes and boats. Um, and, you know, there's things like support for entrepreneurs that generally favors the, uh, the more fiscally conservative and the, the higher income earners in Canada. But the key thing for me is that there's no wealth tax in this budget. I think that would have been, that would have been, you know, my biggest fear for the largest impact on the economy. Because I think with a wealth tax, you're likely to have a significant number of business leaders leaving the country. Because if you, I've seen, uh, calculations that a uh, a two percent wealth tax would put a significant number of high income people to have marginal tax rates above a hundred percent, including consumption taxes and property taxes. Hmm. So, what exactly is the point of working if you are losing money by working? And you know, the UK has put wealth surtaxes on place and in place and they didn't work and they had to reverse them. Uh, How did the they past. not work there, right? How did they not because work? Because people, people hire better lawyers to avoid the taxes or they simply change jurisdictions and they move somewhere else. And, and then you never get them back. The problem then is you, you never get them back. Once they're gone, they're gone because you, wherever they are, the taxes are way lower than where they are in Canada. And these days, and especially during COVID, if we've learned anything in COVID, you can operate businesses from anywhere in the world that are in Canada 
and you don't need to be resident or even a resident for tax purposes of Canada to run businesses. And I hadn't th- so, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, Barry. Um, that that's incredibly true. You know, um, I, I mean, I hear it from I think some of the younger Wall Street people not wanting to you know, work in New York City and, and you know, yeah. take the, what, what would they be paying, you know, when they get the state, uh, city and federal tax in the United States, if you're, you know, a, a, a young Wall Streeter, um, they want to move to Florida. Like, and that's just kind of a microcosm yeah. of what works, what we might experience in Canada if we haven't already. And, you know, the it's fine in the United States because it's within the United States. It's not fine for New York though. And just like for Canada as a whole, it would not be fine at all for Canada if Canadians just said, you know, see, see you later. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think a lot of the CEOs of Wall Street firms are moving to Florida, but I think a lot of the middle and upper management people, if, they, if their family situation allows it, are moving to Florida because... If you've got a 15 or 20% differential in your tax rate and you're a relatively high income earners, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And so New York is going to have a very tough time balancing their budgets. And by the way, it's one of the reasons I own DraftKings stock is because they're (laughs) going to have to, they're going to have to allow uh, sports betting in New York City, which will be the largest revenue provider for DraftKings, um, probably of any state in America. Why? Why New York? Why will that benefit DraftKings? I don't know the story that as well as you do. Well, it's because uh, if you're in New York City, you cannot use, you can't bet on sporting events through DraftKings. It's illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, they said they were going to change the law to do it, and they never got it through their session before they they went on break. And DraftKings stock went up to like $75 based on anticipation of New York approving sports betting. And when they didn't do it, it came off pretty hard, and it's in the mid-50s now. Uh, But New York has no choice but to approve that they need the revenue desperately hmm. you know Barry, there's when a I saw small side away from the budget well i know but but it's important because you know the reality is you know we can see all these things going on and i think this is so important from a policy perspective that you might like or not like but you can always kind of find the right trade um given what is going on so to your and that's what we're talking about and that's why you know one reason why I think, you know, the markets are so great. There's almost a democratization that the markets provide you if you don't like what your democracy is doing, which is, you know, in your case, you're, you're going to own DraftKings. I actually thought, because I knew you owned it, I had wondered when I saw the stock come down if you'd taken profits, but it sounds like if anything, you want to continue to own it and hold it. Oh, definitely. I want to hold it. I mean, I think sports betting is only legal in 12 or 13 of 50 states. So... There's a lot of upside now. A fair amount of that was definitely in the stock at $75. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that um, the, the 
sports betting will be legal in all 50 states within two to three years. Do you? Because it's been something that's been talked about for 20 years and I've been waiting. Yeah, yeah, it has been for and but never have the states had bigger deficit problems ever than the year after COVID. Fair and point. The thing about the states in the US, technically they're not allowed to run deficits. Right, but they do. Uh, there's not like Canadian provinces, <laughs> right? So, right, right. Barry, I want, I want to get your 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 views as well. You know, as I mentioned, you know, again, just because the policies are A doesn't mean you can't have a plan A plus. I'm always about not plan B, but plan A plus. So, right. you know, when we take a look at the money printing, uh, monetary policy, fiscal policy around the world, I don't want to, you know, pick on one country at all. And that's not the point of this at all. But, you know, when you see money printing, that was one reason why so many people have been buying into the cryptocurrency or digital asset world. Right. Um, love your thoughts on, on Bitcoin now, especially over the weekend. Obviously, there was negative news surrounding, you know, what can the U.S. Treasury do as it relates to controlling cryptocurrency? So what are your thoughts there these days? Yeah, I like the, 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 the idea of... of major governments issuing cryptocurrencies or digital currencies as they're calling them makes sense simply through uh, the payment mechanisms for everything are going digital and at some point we'll never we won't use cash anymore it'll all be digital uh, so that's what makes sense but that has nothing to do with cryptocurrencies cryptocurrencies the whole point of bitcoin Bitcoin particularly, is there's a finite number of them. And every country around the world is increasing debt and deficits. And uh, people want a store of value. And uh, so the whole idea that Bitcoin would go down because the US government is considering issuing a digital currency, to me, that doesn't really, that doesn't make any sense. I don't think the people that are selling because of that really understand the, you know, the whole landscape of what they're doing. Bitcoin mm -hmm. is, is something different. You know, it's more akin to digital gold that people want a hedge against inflation and they want a hedge against debasement of currencies. And the United States government issuing a digital currency is just a different form of the US dollar. We still have $28 trillion in debt, whether it's digital or whether it's cash. So to me, those are not really relevant things. And I think we're in a world where debt and deficits are really accelerating. They probably will for the next few years. Uh, until the market vigilantes basically do things that discourage that from happening. And because of that, I think that uh, cryptocurrencies have a good chance to go up significantly in value. And if you look at you know Bitcoin, its market cap is still about 10% of what gold's investment gold is. Hmm. So 
it, it could go to 500,000 and still have be the same valuation store value as gold is in the world. Mm-hmm. Whether it will or not, I don't know. I, I know that the, uh, the volatility is, you know, extraordinarily high. Volatility of Bitcoin is around 80% or so, when the volatility of the stock market, the S&P 500, is 18 to 20%. Um, but we'll see whether as Bitcoin becomes more mainstream and there's more institutional investors, if the volatility falls significantly, that's a very uh, bullish sign. Mm-hmm. So still, let's still own our, our digital currencies. Um, yeah. Rounding out the picture here, kind of including, talked obviously about the budget and um, a couple areas to invest in. Kind of stepping back though, Barry, um, what, what's your view right now? Here we are, uh, April, ending April for, I don't know if you're going to look out to the remainder of this year. I mean, you're very tactical in your approach. You've got your long-term yeah. views, but you're all tactical. So I don't know if you want, if you're seeing something interesting on a tactical basis or just sticking to kind of the, long, the your long-term plan. Yeah, okay. So I'll give you two ranges, one for the S&P 500 and two, the yield on the 10-year bond for the rest of this year. Okay. Okay. So yeah. I think the top end of the S&P 500 will be somewhere around 4,400, maybe 4,450. And I think uh, there's a chance it uh, could trade as low as I'd say 3250 to 3300. So we could have, you know, maybe 300 points of upside for the S&P 500 and maybe a thousand points of downside. Um, but you can't bet even though that that would imply being bearish. Um, Don't forget that the market's up quite a bit already this year. And uh, uh, a 20% correction in the stock market uh, would be healthy and get rid of some of the speculative excesses. And uh, But I do expect equities to trade higher over the next two to three years. and the 10-year treasury yield right now is 160. I would say that the range for the rest of the year is probably 2% to 1%. So I'm expecting 10-year tr- treasury yields to rise in the next three, four months or so. But I think that we're likely to have a very, very strong rally in the bond market at some point this year. That's a that's a major range, yeah. if, is it not? On that US yeah. 10 yield, one to well, 2%, are, that sounds like a lot of volatility in the bond market. Those are definitely outlier calls. Um, you know, the consensus is that bond yields are just going nowhere but up and the economy is going nowhere but up and the stock market's going nowhere but up. And when everybody believes something, usually something else happens. And uh, like David Rosenberg talks about Bob Farrell's 
um, things. And, you know, I think it's number nine or whatever it is that when everybody believes one thing, what's going to happen is something else. Um, but I do think that the world is too optimistic about the growth projections, the inflation projections, and uh, and for earnings, not so much for this year, but once the market starts to discount growth and earnings and inflation for next year, um, you know the consensus GDP forecast is above four percent next year, and it's seven to eight percent this year. Um, and once the stimulus has worked its way through, you know, we couldn't even average 2% for the last 10 years. So unless we're gonna have more QE and more stimulus beyond what's already in the marketplace today, I think the projections for next year are quite a, much too high. Hmm. Okay, which means that we then have to revisit our our view in terms of S&P 500 earnings and therefore yeah. uh, where the market goes next year. But for now, yeah. uh, a big and range. But, but you do say that the equity markets are expected to go higher for the next two to three years. Yeah, but don't forget that the, mar the markets, the stock market, everybody is aggressively long and margin debts at record highs. And the stock or the, the bond market is some of the higher short positions in history. So at some point, if everybody short bonds, that only leaves buyers. And if everybody's long stocks on margin, that only leaves sellers. And, yeah. you know, the fundamentals take a backseat to technicals. And the bond market short positions are getting stretched. I think they'll get more stretched. And I think that the, the equity positions and leveraged equity positions are stretched already. I think they'll get more stretched. More stretched meaning people are gonna to continue to use leverage and, and margin. And that's why I think uh, you know, we could go 4,400, 4,450 on the S&P before we get a correction. Got it. Um, just lastly here, Barry, and thanks for those projections. Uh, um, but um, when you talk about the amount of margin that is being used in the equity markets right now, so margin for those who are just joining us, um, basically the borrowing of money to be able to buy stocks. Um, what, what do you think that percentage is now versus historically? Uh, I don't know the exact percentages, but I know that margin debt essentially is at record highs. Okay. So more people than ever in history are borrowing money to buy stocks. Got it, and, which makes sense. Well, it, and, I'm not saying it makes sense, but people are at home uh, and more and more people yeah. are, are in the market. More people are trading because they're at home all day. Yeah. And we know how that ends. We just don't know when it's gonna, when it ends and we don't know from what level it ends. We know how we it know, ends. Wait, we know how it ends because why? The retail investor because doesn't seem to be able to do as well? 
No, or it's not even the retail investor. It really should be the big hedge funds that, you know, take on leverage. Yeah, well, look at, look at this guy, Billy Wang, who was running his own family office. He had a billion, he was a billionaire. He traded it into 20 billion within two years, which the only way you can do that is to be massively leveraged. Uh, and he got so leveraged, so over leveraged that within two days, his net worth went from 20 billion to zero. And on top of that, the investment banks who were providing the leverage lost another six or seven billion dollars. Credit Suisse lost four and a half billion dollars just one bank. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> okay. So, you know, those are red flags of when we're at tops of markets and or interim tops in markets and mm -hmm. when corrections start to happen. So, right. you know, it's, it's reasonable even though we could have 8% GDP this year, we could still have a 20% correction in the stock market because it gets too overvalued, too stretched, too much leverage. And then mm -hmm. some innocuous event happens that calls in, you know, that maybe tempers all the gross expectations and then everybody piles in to sell and you have a calamity. We have, we, you know, this has happened hundreds of times. Right, right. I hear you. Um, uh, yeah, I think we have to be somewhat tactical and, and just really know the companies that you own if you're in the market and, and what the valuations look like. I think that's been kind of my approach as of late. Right. So, I mean, I, I mean, I think when you're at, when you have record high equity prices, record high multiples and record low credit spreads, and there are people trying to make an argument that we're early cycle. Yeah. Okay, I've been doing this for 40 years. I've never seen early cycle when things are the most expensive they've ever been in history. <laughs> okay. That's what happens at end of cycles. So yeah. it's very likely that the end of the last cycle was precipitated by COVID and the recession was arrested by massive monetary and fiscal stimulus, mm -hmm. um, which is gonna last for 12 to 18 months. And we're starting by the end of this year, we'll be at the end of that. So expecting you know, some retracement in markets would not be an unusual thing. And Barry, we will leave it on that note. Uh, great okay. skate reviews on the budget and the markets and where we go from here. So thank you so much as okay. always. Good to okay. see you. We'll talk in a few weeks. Yep. Perfect. Speak to you soon. Okay, Thanks. Talk to you later. Yeah.